a little bit more today of what Paul has to say to his dear friend Timothy. Paul, nearing the end of his life, what does he have to pass on to his close friend, like a son to him, Timothy? He wants to help Timothy, wants to help Timothy's church, wants to help them set their course in a direction that's going to bring honor and glory to God. They need that help because they're in a a world, a society, a city that is not helpful to that end. And so they need the words of Paul. We need the words of Paul because our course is the same today, that we would bring honor and glory to God. That's our church's course, our, our household of faith here. It is the course, if you have a family, for your household and for you as individual Christians. That is the course that God has you on to bring Him honor and glory. And we are pulled in all different directions. God pulls us back to the center through Paul and his writing to Timothy. And I'll pray and we'll take a look at chapter 4 today. Our Father in heaven, make us a more thankful people who are always remembering what we would be without you and who we would be apart from you and who we are because of you and what we have because of you. Remind us how gracious you've been. Remind us how you have, you have worked miracles in our life, miracles in our heart, miracles in hearts around us, uh, miraculous changes in circumstance, uh, miraculous provision, miraculous health, miracles, God, where there's no explanation other than there is a sovereign God who loves us and cares for us and wants to, as a good and loving Father, shower gifts on His people. And so help us, especially when we are in the middle of times and places that that may not feel like we are loved and cared for, remind us in these times and in these moments just how gracious You've been. And when we come together to worship You on Sunday, that it would be an overflow of our heart, that it wouldn't be driven by duty, but it would be driven by delight in You. Make us conscious now, your people. Make us conscious of you and your character and your provision so that we would enjoy you today and love you and that that would fly above everything else that's happening in our lives. That we would have biblical perspective on life. As we come now to your word, we pray that the preaching of your word would be powerful, and I pray that it would accomplish what you want it to accomplish, that your people would be changed, and that new people would come to believe. And this would happen through the means of your word getting preached. So, send your Holy Spirit to move in us, and through us, and among us, wielding His sword the Bible. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. First Timothy chapter 4, 
verses 6 through 16. So Paul now, he is turning very personally to Timothy. The whole letter is addressed to Timothy. But then you will see times where Paul turns especially to Timothy and talks to him about his role as a pastor. And there will be things in that that may not apply to all of us because we're all not pastors or called to be pastors. So we've got to figure out what to pull out of it. All of these letters that are written in your Bible, though, though they're addressed to Timothy or Titus or the church in Ephesus or Colossae or Thessalonica, they were meant to be read to the church, including these letters to Timothy and to Titus. So it's not just, don't feel like you're reading somebody's diary, remember, and think that this doesn't apply to you. When Paul is writing to Timothy, he is writing to Timothy's church. So don't check out and think that it doesn't apply to us. But we do need to make note today that he's going to give some specific instruction to Timothy that relates to him as a pastor. But the things that he's going to challenge Timothy to do as a pastor are things that every Christian needs to be challenged to do. The accountability is different, and the purpose of it is different. We won't all then take what Paul is giving us and apply it to our role as a shepherd and a church, but you will apply it to your life as a Christian. And I want to start with reading verse 16. And we'll work backwards. We'll go verse 16, and then we'll come back up to verses 6 through 15, because in verse 16, Paul gives a summary of everything that he said in the previous nine verses. And this is what he says. To Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. Okay, this summarizes what Paul has just said, the immediate context But this is a theme that we've seen in our entire study of Paul's first letter to Timothy. Watch, Timothy, Christian, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. So if you are a Christian, your behavior matters. And if you are a Christian, your belief matters. It is not one or the other. As a Christian, we need to think well. We need to have good perspective. We need to think about ourselves in a biblically informed way. What do I think about me? What does the Bible say about me? We need to think about God in a biblically informed way. Who is God? How do I think about Him? What does the Bible tell us about God? You need to think about the world and life and your job and your family and your circumstances. You need to think about all of those things and you need to think about them well and biblically. So your theology is important. Your doctrine is important. The teaching that you swallow is important. But so is your life. The way you live is important. The do's and the don'ts, the rules, 
There is good behavior and bad behavior. There is good belief and there is bad belief. And the two should go together. They should go together in this way. Remember we said that right thinking leads to right living. So you've got a living problem. And we say right living, we mean living that honors God. So when we talk about the good life, when we talk about the good life, we don't, we don't mean vacations in Incline Village. We don't mean necessarily an $80,000 car in the garage. Okay, this isn't what we mean when we say the good life. When we mean the good life and right living, we mean living that honors God. Now, if you want to have right living, if you want to be square with God and reconciled to God and hopeful with God, there needs to be right belief and right thinking. Right thinking leads to right living. Think of your life as the fruit and think of your belief system as the root. And you can't have fruit without the root. I have a tree at our house. We have lots of trees. But I've got a couple of trees that don't do what they're supposed to do. One of them is in the back corner of our property. We have an almond tree. Now, I should, every year, have almonds. Because it's an almond tree. That's its job. It was created to make almonds. And if it doesn't make almonds, it's, in my opinion, it's a worthless tree. But I go out there and we get like these puny, these puny little almonds that are just tiny and dried up. A couple times I've cracked them open, needed a sledgehammer to do it, got an almond out, and it just tasted bitter and terrible. So I'm really, I'm just, I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in this tree. Now there are two ways I can go about trying to get better fruit on this tree. Better almonds on this tree. Okay, there's the right way. And that is to invest in the root of the tree, right? Most of you know this. It's common sense. I mean, I should, I should water the tree. I've never watered the tree. I should probably water the tree. It's in an awkward place. It's not easy to get water to. It'd be a lot of work. I should amend the soil. Okay? Let's maybe till it up, you know, put some miracle grow in there. Maybe put some mulch on it, some bark to hold in the moisture. I mean, listen, I know what to do, but I'm totally neglecting this tree, and yet I'm angry that I don't have the fruit that I want. Okay, so this is how some Christians live their life. They live just externally. It's called external Christianity. You're paying no attention to the root. There's no internal Christianity. There's no love and desire for God. There's no enjoyment of Him. There's no delighting in Him. There's no the pleasure of God in your life. But on the outside, you look like a great Christian. This is what that would be doing to this almond tree. It would be like me going down to the grocery store or the farmer's market and buying a ton of good-looking almonds, bringing them to my almond tree and zip-tying the almonds to the almond tree. You say, that's ridiculous. External Christianity, washing the outside of the cup, is totally ridiculous. You come over to my house and say, hey, I want to show you my almond tree. You say, really? Are there almonds on it? Yep. Great almonds. Perfect almonds. And I take you out there, and you're you're this freakish sight. I've I've, I've spent who knows how many hours, right, zip-tying. And think, that would be difficult to do, right? Zip-tying almonds to my tree. It's it's the wrong way. That's why I was was waiting for Pat. (laughs) 
the wrong way to go about it. The tree is still worthless. Right? The tree didn't do anything. This is what external Christianity is. This is what we've been talking about. This is what we've been talking about. That that, that Paul is making very clear to Timothy that you've got to watch your doctrine closely and you've got to watch your life closely. Now I want to make a clarification. I thought about this on Monday after last week's sermon. So I want to to make a clarification of what I said. Because we're talking a lot... Paul is talking a lot about do not do this washing of the outside of the cup. Do not follow this list of rules. Do not have these do's and these don'ts. And think that if you follow this list of do's and don'ts, that's what's going to make God approve of you. You remember he addressed that last week? He said, that is demonic thinking. If you're depriving yourself of certain things, and you think that because you deprive yourself of certain things, that that puts you into this spiritual elite league, and God is now more pleased with you, Paul is saying, you need to throw that away. That is demonic doctrine that comes through the insincerity of liars. And it's, it's wrong. But when we say that, What we're not saying is that we're against rules or we're against the do's and the don'ts. I mean, let's be clear. The Christian life is a life of do's and don'ts. The Christian life is a life of rules. The Bible is clear. There are many rules. And we want to throw out the rules. We don't want to throw out God's law. But we need to obey these things Here's the important part. But the why we obey them is crucial. And if we're not obeying for the right reasons, we're actually hating the gospel, not honoring God, and headed toward nothing but pain and suffering in our life. So let me just say three clarifying things. We must not when it comes to rules and regulations and do's and don'ts, first of all, we must not call good things evil. Hopefully you got that last week. Paul is furious about it. We must not call things like food and marriage and sex. We must not say, oh, those are bad things, those are dirty things, those are nasty things. And so I'm not going to get married. Those who are truly spiritual are those who commit to a life of celibacy, Okay, there are entire religions today that believe that the truly spiritual, those qualified to be a priest, would be those who commit themselves to celibacy. And Paul calls that demonic. Or to think that, oh, I'm not going to eat anything that tastes good because now God's going to... No, be very careful. Do not come up with your own category of evil things. And we do this. Movies, entertainment, certain food, certain drink, sex. And we say, no, these things, money, are just evil. And real good Christians stay away from them. Don't have anything in that category that God created in Genesis chapter 1 and said was good. The second thing, the point that Paul is driving home, is that we must not abstain from things 
in order to merit God's favor. We must, if you want to abstain from things, fine. But we must not abstain from things in order to merit God's favor. That is demonic. It's called works righteousness. Salvation by works. It is actually the opposite of the gospel. Because in order to believe that I do things to get God's approval, you have to believe the opposite of the gospel. You have to think very highly of yourself and think very lowly of God. And the gospel is thinking very lowly of yourself and very highly of God. But if you're going to think that if you abstain from certain things, and if the rules that you have in your life are how you gain God's favor, then first of all, you lower your thoughts of God because you make His standard something that you actually think you can meet, and His approval something you can in and of yourself gain. So you have to lower God, but then you also have to elevate yourself, and you actually become somebody you believe who is capable, who is capable in and of yourself, apart from God, of pleasing Him. When the truth of the gospel is, you are far more sinful than you ever dared believe. So it's really bad. It's not bad. It's we don't have a word for it, bad. But God is more loving and accepting than we ever dared hope. So God is good. He is, we don't even have a word for it, good. And that is the gospel. So Paul says, you got people in your church who are teaching that that God's approval and favor is something that can be merited, and it's being merited by this elite group of Christians who are legalists and formalists who, who have these rules, and they're the ones that obey the rules, and therefore they have God's favor, and others do not, at least not to the degree they have it. Paul writes to Timothy and says, listen, do you know where that came from? It came from a demon. You know, the people who are preaching it, they are liars. He, he can't deal with it more strictly. So watch your life and your doctrine closely. Both and. Both and. On one side... There are those who are all this, what we've been talking about for weeks. It's just external. But don't go so far that you stop paying attention to God's will, that you stop listening to His rules, that you stop paying attention to godliness and holiness. Pay attention to your life. Because there's the other side. There's those who, oh, I'm not going to do anything, not going to handle, not going to touch, not going to taste. I'm a good Christian. God loves me because I don't do these things. And then there's the other side that says, free in Christ. Touch it, taste it, handle it. What, do you not know the gospel? We have been forgiven. We are, you know, they're usually slurring their speech even when they're saying these things. And, and everything's open. And no law and no rules. No, no, no. Paul comes back. Watch your life. Keep a close watch on yourselves and on the teaching. So, the clarification is we're not saying rules are bad. Rules are great. 
If you want order and organization, you better have rules. As well, rules are good when they reflect God's will for righteous living among Christians. Christian. You need to know the do's and the don'ts. Ephesians 5.10. We need to find out what pleases the Lord. And there's a way to live that pleases God. And there's a way to live that doesn't please God. And so Paul goes from this sort of, listen, forget these rules and forget these regulations. Get that out of your head. Doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Believe the gospel. But now, he turns to Timothy and it's all what? Do this. Don't do this. Do this. Don't do this. And so we need to understand where Paul is coming from. So he says, Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Says Paul, says to Timothy, Timothy, you want to be saved? Who doesn't want to be saved? This is incentive for watching your life and your doctrine closely. For by so doing, you'll be saved and your hearers will be saved. says, Timothy, uh, Timothy, you want to be saved? What about your hearers? What about those who are in your church? What about those you're preaching to every Sunday? You want them to be saved? Then watch your life and your doctrine closely. That's how you get that. Christian, you want to be saved? How, how do I be saved? You want the people around you? You want the hearers in your life, whoever they are, your family, your wife, your husband, your kids, your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends? You want your hearers also to be saved? What is the way to get that according to verse 16? Paul says, watch your life and your doctrine. Keep a close watch on both. So now back up to verse 6. Let's look back and see a description of the doctrine and the life that Timothy is to watch closely. Verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Paul says, Timothy, you want to be a good pastor? Servant is also translated minister. Christian, you want to be a good servant? You want to be a good disciple? You want to be a good follower of Christ? You want to honor Him? He says, Timothy, you want to be a good pastor? He says, set these things. Put these things before the brothers. He says in verse 11, command and teach these things. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, What you have heard from me, Timothy, entrust to faithful men. Paul is saying, Timothy, you will be a good pastor if you pass it on. Okay, this is what a pastor is meant to, A pastor, his primary role. The primary role of a pastor is to be a conduit of truth. This is the pri- there are many purposes, there are many roles, many functions that a pastor, a good shepherd, has to perform if he's going to be a good pastor. But primarily, primarily it is this. He must be a conduit of the truth. Because a pastor is one who passes on truth. 
put these things, Paul says, before the brothers and sisters. What you've heard from me, entrust to faithful men. What you've heard from God, command and teach these things to your church. Because a pastor is one who's going to pass these things along. What are these things? Well, generally speaking, it's God's Word. It's the truth of who God is. And it's, this is true, and these are lies. The immediate context says that these things is what Paul had just told him in verses 1 through 5. Namely, that there's this teaching that's a lie out there that you can somehow be justified by law-keeping. Or if you forbid certain things and you live a certain way. And Paul says, so pass this thing on. It's not just for Timothy. A pastor does this. A pastor is supposed to first feed on God's Word, feed on God's truth, and then he's supposed to pass God's Word on. You will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. What has happened to Timothy first? Being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So before Timothy is putting things before the brothers and sisters, he has been trained in the words of the faith and the good news. That means that primarily, he didn't take classes that helped him to manage people. That means that primarily, he doesn't think about what is just going to pragmatically be effective in the context he finds himself in. It means that primarily he's not learning new counseling techniques. These may, some of them, be good things. I had to take a college in class. I paid over $1,000 for it called Games and Recreation. And it was a required class to take in order to become a pastor. That would not make Paul's list. How has Timothy been trained? Trained up in the words of the faith and good doctrine. So a pastor needs to be, if you have a King James, New King James, New American Standard, it says, nourished up in God's Word. A pastor, I am no good to any of you if I am not myself being nourished by God's Word. This is why in a typical week, almost half my time Half my work week is spent preparing for one hour on a Sunday. Feasting on God's Word. Because if I'm not feasting on God's Word, there is not a prayer for you in this hour to feast on God's Word. There is not a prayer for you to be nourished on a Sunday unless I'm being nourished throughout the week. One of the ways to say this is that a preacher must preach his sermon to himself before he preaches it to anyone else. Personally for me, throughout the week, as I'm preparing a sermon, I have to first preach the sermon to myself. I have to know it. I have to apply it. Before I tell you what it means... And before I ask you to apply it. 
I think it comes out in my preaching sometimes. Sometimes things will come across with a more energy than others, more passion than others. Sometimes people have said you just you seem you seem angry or upset, even more passionate about this than other times. But what do you think has happened during the week? Through my study and through the Holy Spirit, He's preached that sermon to me in the same way. And the conviction was heavy. And it was strong. And so the delivery is going to come out heavy and strong. Why? Because the sermon is being preached to myself first. So a pastor then, this is an implication, a pastor must be a theologian. A pastor must be a theologian. If a pastor is not interested in learning God's Word and in learning God's truth, he cannot be a pastor. He should not be a pastor. He needs to like doctrine. Okay? He needs to get excited when he opens a concordance. Weird things like that. I enjoy that. I like to sit in my office and open my Bibles and open my Logos software. And I like to have my concordance out. And I like to have books out. And, and I, I, like the, I even like the room dark except for a light just on my desk. And I enjoy that. I like to read books that are written by people who've been dead for centuries and, and speak almost in a, in a different language. I, I like to read paragraphs that I don't understand and I read them again and again and again. I, I enjoy these things. I get chills and goosebumps and I like to turn off my phone. I usually think that my phone is for me to get a hold of people. <laughs> That's why I have a phone, and for my wife to get a hold of me. But that's basically about it. So, I, so I, when I study, the phone is off. And all I'm doing is, I'm, and there's this new feature that I'm loving where I can cut everybody out except for Kristen. But I can look at my phone, and what am I doing? I'm just looking to see if it says my wife. I'm just looking to see if it's a text from my wife. And if not, now I've got time allotted. I am not looking at it, and I have no problem not looking at it because I am nourishing myself in God's Word so that I can put it before you so that when I'm preaching on Sunday or when I'm counseling you in my office or when I'm directing you in ministry or when I'm getting to know you or when I'm in a formal discipleship relationship with you or whether you're a deacon or leading beside me or or under me, whatever it is, so that it's God's Word and God's truth that comes out. And so a pastor, he must enjoy those things. If a pastor says, you know, theology is not really my thing, doctrine is not really my thing, he should not be a pastor because he's going to have nothing to put before people. But worthless trinkets. I've got to read this to you. It's one of those things that's so sad, it's funny. So you're like, that's sad and you think you shouldn't laugh. No, it's in the category of so sad, it's funny. So you, you may laugh. Bill, it's over 10 years old. I'm sure it's just worse now, but I couldn't believe this. It was an interview with Reverend Bill Phipps, who was the, at the time the moderator of the United Church of Canada. So he isn't just a pastor. He's like a pastor over pastors. 
Okay, at the time, there were three million members in this denomination. And he was asked about his doctrine and his theology. And here were some of the things that he said. And I quote, The divinity of Jesus and the reality of heaven and hell are irrelevant. This is Pastor Bill. What really matters is mending a broken world. Jesus is more interested in life on earth than the afterlife. I have no idea if there is a hell. I don't think Jesus was that concerned about hell. Is there a heaven? A place? I have no idea. This wasn't Joel Osteen. This is Bill Phipps. He says this. I don't believe Jesus was God. Pastor Bill. If you didn't catch let me read that one again. Right? So sad, it's funny. This is ridiculous. I don't, Pastor Bill, I don't believe Jesus was God. So here's what Bill is putting before the people. This is classic. I don't believe Jesus was God, and I quote, but hey, I'm no theologian. That's, a, that's an illustration from heaven. I mean, you, you see this. A pastor must be a theologian. What is he going to put in front of people? So Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, if you're going to be a good pastor, then be trained up in the Word of God. Be trained up in sound doctrine and put these things before the brothers and sisters. Listen, a church that is heavy on preaching and heavy on the Word of God is not Eric's style. That's not why Veritas is what Veritas is. Veritas is what Veritas is because God has commanded us to be a people where you have pastors who are trained up in the words of the faith and sound doctrine and putting them before the brothers and sisters. And God determined 2,000 years ago that in His church, His primary means of delivering truth to His people would be through the preaching of God's worth on a Sunday morning. Seriously. More than the books, more than the podcasts, more than the community groups, more than the teaching, this is serious business. God's primary means for getting truth to His people is the Holy Spirit wielding the Word through, through preachers who are preaching the Word every week to God's people on the Lord's Day. That is God's tradition. We didn't just make it up. What's sad is people hear it and they're like, that's so innovative. That is cutting edge. Like hour and 15 minutes of preaching. Never would have thought that would work. But you guys are you're doing it. Now, where did you get that idea? 1 Timothy chapter 4? It's not new. It's old. Verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. There's everything other than the gospel, everything other than sound doctrine. Just leave it alone. 
Leave it alone. Don't invest in it. Have nothing to do with. It means don't go by love wins. It means don't, don't invest in, in reading what the different cults believe. It says be very careful because Paul says, have nothing to do with this. Focus on God's word. Focus on the truth. Everything else is irreverent and silly. And there is a lot going on today that is just irreverent and silly. Have you, have you been a part of churches where he was just, you just, this is just silly. Like, seriously, we're, we're doing that? Like, it's on the flyer. We are doing it. Our Easter promotion is, we're going to drop Easter eggs out of a helicopter? I didn't make that up. That baby was local. We're, we're bringing... Kelly Clarkson, she's going to preach to us on Easter Sunday. We're going to do just silly teaching series. I know of one teaching series, not local. Huge, successful church. The Whoopie Cushion Life was a sermon series, including sermon titles like Pull My Finger and Silent But Deadly. I know one sermon that was based on Peter's denial, and it was called the Cockadoodle Denial. What is, it is just silliness. What else is it? It's totally irreverent. It's irreverent and silly. That's why we don't have these silly kinds of things. That's why I don't sit up here with a music stand, sitting on a stool. I mean, this is serious business. It's worth standing for an hour. So we have this, I mean, this pulpit is a representation of that. We've had guys throw their backs out trying to move this thing. I mean, this is a serious pulpit. When you look at this, you're like, wow, this is serious. The preaching of the Word is serious. And pulpits have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. When you hear sermons that are helping you to actualize your potential or you, you have sermon series that come with their own songs and their bracelets and the, and the bumper stickers and the campaign and, and, and so much of it becomes irreverent and silly. But the preaching of God's Word is not to be done in an irreverent way And it is not to be done in a silly way. In fact, we are to have nothing to do. This is serious business. Christian, you should be serious. Serious about holiness. Serious about joy. Take these things to heart. Is Paul's challenge to Timothy. Rather, he says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself. Compares it to physical fitness. What is he saying? Saying, Timothy? Timothy's church? Spiritual fitness better be 
a priority. Don't just wash the outside of the cup. I don't pay attention to your heart. Pay attention to your soul. Care for your soul. Work internally. He says, train yourself in this. That would have been a common metaphor in this day. They all knew and could point to athletes. They could look at them and they could, they could see their commitment to physical fitness. And they could see the, the payoff that came at the end. And so Paul said, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be spiritually obese. Okay, pay attention to yourself spiritually, Christians. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna talk about the gospel. You're going to talk about how good God is. And have a spiritually disciplined, fit life where you pay attention to your soul and not just your body. And to Timothy, Timothy, no one's going to take you serious if you're this hypocrite and you're just talking about putting these things before everybody about how, how important their spirituality is and how important their soul is if, Timothy, if you're neglecting it. Have you, ever, have you seen the fitness instructor who is not fit? Is that who you want to pay to train you? No. I mean, guys, right, if you go to a gym and someone's going to train you, you, you want him to be named Thunder. You want him to have big arms. Right? You want him to be stat. You, you want him to look a certain way. And if he's buttered out and pudgy, you're going to be like, you know, I don't think, I don't think I'm interested in your training, sir. <laughs> why? Because you're laughing. Right? It's a joke. He's not. Why is he fit? Have you ever seen the teacher who doesn't himself learn? Did any of you went to college have the professor that's just been been giving out the same information for thirty years? My wife's laughing. We have this professor. Just 40 years, just, so he's teaching the students, you know, learn, learn, learn. But he hasn't learned a thing. He's, he's still using illustrations of us landing on the moon. I mean, just 40 years old, using an overhead projector. Some of you don't even know what an overhead projector is. Like this bright bulb with like a huge turbine in it to cool the thing down. And you've got these transparencies. And he had these old yellow transparencies, brittle Right with notes on them that were literally 40 years old. It's like he made a pot of porridge 40 years ago, and he just puts it in the fridge and just gets it out every semester and just puts it in a bowl, throws it in the microwave, and tries to serve it up. And all the students are like, this is nasty. And it's hypocritical because you're not committed to learning yourself. Why would I learn? The same thing as a pastor right, who is not spiritually fit who is not paying attention to his spiritual life, who is not training, Paul says, training for godliness. Verse 10. For to this end, we toil and strive. You're getting this. Listen to all the words Paul is using. This is hard work. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God. Here's a controversial verse, often misunderstood, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's address that verse quickly. Paul is not a universalist. A universalist, guys like Rob Bell, 
guys like Brian McLaren, people who believe that God is going to save everyone. Everyone gets saved. Well, it says right here, God is the Savior of all people. Paul is not a universalist. In fact, you can turn back just a couple pages. Go ahead. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Just to clarify. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. This does not sound like Paul is a universalist. He said this, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with the mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Doesn't sound like everyone gets saved at the end. Verse 9, They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. God does not save all people, and yet we have a text here where it says that God is the Savior of all people. So here's a, a theological statement. If you learn this, it can be very helpful in understanding verses like this where you seem to have contradictions. It's this. The mercy of God is universal in its scope. But the mercy of God is particular in its special application. In other words, God is the Savior of all people in the sense that the scope of His mercy is universal. God is loving and kind and good and merciful to all people. But God's mercy is particular in its application to certain people. To those, especially, the verse says, those who believe. So God is a Savior of what Romans 2 and Romans 3 are helpful here. Where it talks about God's mercy, His grace that is commonly poured out on all people. But then there's His grace that is especially poured out on a few, the chosen, His church, His bride, His people. So God is a Savior of all people. Okay, delaying His wrath for all people, allowing them to have a good life and to breathe air and to eat food and drink water. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The gospel is not just for certain people. The good news goes out to all people from all tongues and all tribes and all nations. In that sense, God is the Savior of all people. We go to all people and call all people to be saved. Paul's told us that in Timothy. But... There is a different way that God is the Savior of those who believe. They are reconciled to God. But God is merciful to all. Maybe you've heard somebody who is not a Christian say something like, what has God ever done for me? The fact is that every single one of us is constantly, inhale, literally, inhaling mercy. Amen. 
inhaling mercy. This right mixture of nitrogen and oxygen. I mean, we are breathing in air. We're given bodies that can live. Given a life, many, of pleasure and enjoyment. God's common grace poured out on all because He loves all. But then there are those whom God loves in a very different way. The way I love my wife in a very different way. They are those who believe they are His bride whom He has greater affection for and reconciles them to God the Father that they may eternally be a part of His household. For this, to this end, Paul says, we toil and strive. There isn't a stronger way for Paul to say when he speaks of watching your life and doctrine closely, maturing as a Christian, that this is hard work. Toil and strive. It's going to take blood. It's going to take sweat. It's going to take tears. This is going to be difficult. There are no quick ways to this. You wish there was, right? We wish there was like 90 days to sanctification. Right, you'd like the DVD. And you pop it in. The motivator comes on. And in 90 days, like shedding pounds, you just shed sin. And it's done. Or you, you'd like to uh, become spiritually fit vicariously. Or physically fit vicariously, for that matter. Wouldn't it be great if you could just employ somebody else to work out and you lose the weight? Wouldn't that be great spiritually? So the pastor does the work. Or your friend does the work. Or your husband does the work. And spiritually they're doing it. And you just think it's going to sort of rub off on you. And Paul's saying, no, this is hard work. For this we toil and we strive. You want to play basketball in college? You better be shooting 500 jump shots a day. You want to run a marathon? You might want to start running. You want to preach and be a pastor? You better learn God's Word. Pete Maravich, some of you have heard of him. Phenomenal basketball player. In college, he averaged 44 points a game. Three years of college basketball. Had an unbelievable jump shot. Averaged 44 points a game before, this will mean something to some of you, before there was a three-point line. Which means in today's standards, he would average about 57 points a game. So you see the fruit. You see that he was fit when it came to basketball. There was a lot of fruit. There was an expert. But when you look at his life, you find out that as young as 12 years old, he started shooting jump shots for eight hours a day. What do you see with any number of athletes paying attention to physical fitness, paying attention to becoming experts in what they do? Kobe Bryant a couple years ago, no matter what you think of him as a person, broke his finger. He learned to shoot the basketball differently because it was a shooting hand and was still just as an effective a scorer. You see this in athletes. This is what Paul is saying. He would have brought up those athletes in that physical fitness. He says, you need to toil and strive. 
Are you a Christian? Do you think that you're going to mature in Christ? Do you think that the joy that you want and the peace that you want and the understanding you want, do you really think that that's going to happen without getting into the spiritual gym? Do you really think... It's a joke. Do you really think that you don't need to read your Bible, you don't need to study, you don't need to pray, you don't need to commune with God, and you're going to somehow end up over here? He says, that is foolish thinking. He says, you see these athletes training for the games? You better train for yourself spiritually like this. We need to be a spiritually disciplined people in God's Word. Praying, communing with Him, studying God's Word, sharing God's Word. And if we're not committed to that, we should not, as reasonable human beings, ever expect that there will be any maturity in our lives. Paul says, for this we toil and we strive. We cannot be spiritually lazy. Timothy, he says, you cannot be spiritually lazy. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Verse 11, he says, command and teach these things. Pass it on. Verse 12. Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy's in a tough situation. He's young. He's inexperienced. He's uneducated. We know that he was timid. He wasn't the type A personality. He wasn't the guy that you just throw in, and if anything, you've got to hold him back because he's going to hurt people. He wasn't that guy. He was the guy who needed a push. He wasn't just naturally bold. He wasn't just naturally courageous. He was timid. That's why Paul says, you know, stay, remain in Ephesus, don't take off. That's why he says God has not given us a spirit of timidity and fear. He's he's pushing him and challenging him. Get out there, toil, strive. Don't let others look down on you because you are young. But rather, he says, set an example for the believers. Set an example for the believers. He says, close your mouth. Live this out. Don't be a young person in the church who's just telling everybody how great and mature you are. Just be mature and set an example. Watch your lifestyle. Watch your life closely. Keep a close watch on your life. And he gives them five areas. Set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Listen, I know. I know you're not getting the respect that you should get. I know you want to take off. I know you want to bail on this. I know it's tough because you're, you're young. I know you, you lack experience. Because here's what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on being a godly young man. I want you to live a holy life. I want you to think well, and I want you to live well. And the first thing he says, 
اسپچ I wondered about why of all the things that he could tell Timothy to be an example in he starts with speech and I think this is why because as we've seen a pastor's ministry is a ministry of his mouth What does he need to do? He needs to be nursed up in the Word of God, and then he has to entrust that and to pass it on and to put these things before the brothers and sisters. So he needs to pay careful attention to his mouth. What comes out of his mouth? This is why Isaiah, you remember in chapter 6, in the very beginning, God calls Isaiah. Isaiah. And God is coming to Isaiah and saying, you are going to be my mouthpiece. You're going to be my preacher, like Timothy. You're going to be my preacher. And Isaiah's response is, I am a man of unclean lips. In other words, he understood this. How can I be a a mouthpiece of God when I know what else comes out of this mouth? When I know the the other things that I'm saying. And Paul is saying, set an example with your mouth. Let's broaden this beyond Timothy. Young people, myself included, wherever you want to draw the line. Young people, we must pay attention to our speech. Young people tend to complain. I don't get the the respect that I should have or that I should want. And people don't look up to me or see me as godly and mature. If you want people to look up to you as godly and mature, become godly and mature. And set an example. Set an example in your speech. What comes out of your mouth? As young people, we have a propensity to think that whatever comes in our head must come out of our mouth. We need to say it. The world needs it. My friend needs it. I need to say it. I need to put it on Facebook. I need to get it out to as many people as possible. I've got a quote. And, and if people don't get this quote today, I don't know if their lives are going to work out. Some of you know that. Have you ever... You think something and you feel compelled to say it. I mean, you literally feel like, if I don't say this, the world is going to come off its axis. I have to say this nugget of truth. I have to give this angle. And young people tend to just talk too much and to say too many things. We tend to think that we are God's gift. It's like the teenager, right, whose parents are morons. And he understands life far better than they do. And we have a society where adolescence gets prolonged. We have people in their 20s and 30s who still think that others don't know what they're talking about. I almost planted a church with that mentality. With this idea that I'll plant the first real church. (laughs) And we'll do it right. You see the slogans. A church for people who don't like church. Have you seen that? 
What's the implication? We're going to do it the right way. Who's usually leading it? A guy who's like 19 years old. <laughs> who's single and taught some Bible studies at YWAM, and now he's good to go. He's church planning material. Because there's just an, an arrogance, which is why Paul, young people set an example, and the first way to set an example is watch your mouth. Just see what happens. I mean, when you feel like you have to say it, just, just test it. Don't say it, and see if, in fact, the world keeps spinning. <laughs> see if, in fact, God's purposes still get accomplished. See if, in fact, God will still be glorified, even if you don't say what you're burning to say. You don't have to say it. You don't have to text it. You don't have to type it. We'd be better off if more young people, I'm not just kidding, if more younger people just stopped talking so much and pontificating on any platform you can get a hold of. says, Timothy, set an example with your speech. Timothy, you're, you're young. Just be careful. We could do a whole sermon on that. Just three Proverbs. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Do you hear? Restrain our lips. Our words don't need to be spoken. God's purposes will stand. What does a wise man do? He restrains his lips. If you're the person that is like the, the ready, fire, aim kind of talker, and people hear you say things like, oh, you, you hear it at the same time I hear it. Don't keep saying those things. What is script? When words are many, transgression is not far behind. If you're a person who just has a propensity to just talk a lot, you, you know it. People have told you. They've said like, Hey, can you stop for a second? I just, I need to breathe. Because cause when words are many, pour a matter of time before you say something that you should not say. And you end up in sin. Proverbs 18, 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Listen, don't speak. I used to do this, I used to do this with my wife all the time. She called me on it, called me on it, called me on it, until finally my heart was... I, I still can do it. Where I wouldn't listen, i just talk. She'd get half a sentence out, and I'd be ready to go. i just assume that I knew where she was going in the conversation. And so I'm doing her a favor, right? I don't, you don't have to exhaust yourself talking anymore. I already know what you're going to say, just relax. Sit down. Let me do the talking. <laughs> I, I know what the problem is, and I know how to fix it, and, you know, I got a verse. Uh, just let me, let me take over, sweetheart. I don't, you don't even need to talk anymore. She'd be like, but that's what I, I want to be listened to. And most of the time I was wrong. I missed it. I didn't have any idea where she was going with it. But what's going on? I just want to talk. I got to say it now. I might forget it. The 30 seconds, I mean, it's, it's gold. It's pure gold. And if I don't say it right now, it might just fall, uh, it might, you know, the hard drive, it might just erase it. And if I don't give it to you now, you know, your life is going to fall apart. 
No, listen. Two ears, one mouth, whatever you need. Just okay, remember. Listen. Talk. We sin with our speech. Proverbs fifteen twenty eight. The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. The righteous, the wise, ponders how to answer. So we just need to think before we speak. Speech is a big deal. Your tongue is a big deal. It can set an entire forest ablaze. It's like the rudder on a huge ship. It can cause a lot of damage. leave a lot of carnage in the lake. So young people, set an example for others with your mouth. Stop saying the things you're saying. Stop making the jokes you're making. Stop gossiping. Stop slandering. The gate just needs to be closed. And so often, all of us, we just need to shut up. Stop saying it. Stop typing it. Stop texting it. Just hold it back. Close the gate. The words can stay so much. If we think and process and think, will this please the Lord, Ephesians 5.10? It won't. Not going to say it. Timothy, you're going to preach. You're going to be a pastor. I'm so convicted by this as a preacher. Watch what comes out of your mouth. You have God's truth come out of your mouth? Then why would you have that filth come out of your mouth? Just shut it. In speech, in life, we don't need to go through these. Life. 1 Timothy 3, I mean, he went through these character qualifications. Timothy lived this way. And then he looks internally. Love, faith, and purity. Timothy, Hebrews 13, 17, you're going to give an account one day, not just for the people you're leading, but you're going to give an account. Were you this kind of an example? Verse 13. An application here for Timothy. Until I come, Paul says, I want you to do this. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. You can read in other texts, and we surmise that this gift that Timothy was given was his ability to preach. Timothy could preach. Timothy could bring it. But he was timid about it. And Paul says, basically, use it or lose it. You need to exercise this muscle that God has given you. He's given you this ability okay, to bear a weight and deliver a punch with your preaching. So, so do not neglect this. It says, in your church, Timothy, devote yourself to the reading of God's Word, to the teaching of God's Word, to the preaching of God's Word. Three different things. Every church must have all three of those elements. We need to read God's Word. Just God's unadulterated, just the Scripture... No interpretation, no application, just reading God's Word together. We need teaching. The Puritans called that light. Okay, we need light. We need the light to be shed. We need to be instructed so that we can understand what God's Word says. Now, preaching is teaching. It's light, but it's more than teaching. The Puritans said that a preacher must bring light and heat. So there's instruction... There's light, but it needs to come with application. It needs to come with exhortation. It needs to come with Holy Spirit unction. It needs to come with a punch. It needs to come with imperatives. People need to be told, now apply this. 
Do this. That's why he tells Timothy, command and teach these things. Timothy, preaching is essential. I'm part of a network of pastors. Our church is a part of a network of churches called Acts 29. Part of my role as any Acts 29 pastor is when there are men who are raised up in the area who want to plant churches and who want to be a pastor, they go through a formal assessment process that takes about a year where other pastors are looking into their lives and making a determination of whether or not they believe that the individual is called to pastor. One of the key components of a church planner is he must preach. A sermon has to be submitted. And if the sermon is listened to, and it's not good, and there's not light, and there's not heat, he cannot plant a church. That gets a red light. Because we're taking seriously God's Word. 2 Timothy 2.15 Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, Timothy, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the Word of Truth. He's got to rightly handle the Word of Truth. 2 Timothy 4.2 Remember, Paul tells Timothy, in season, out of season, preach the Word. This is what a pastor does. He is a conduit of the truth. He is a preacher of God's Word. Verse 15. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. says, Timothy, this is the progress you want people to see. Not progress in performance. Progress in character. Persist in this, Pastor Timothy, so that others may see your progress. In other words, it will be obvious to your church that you're being nourished by God's Word. That's heavy. I mean, if those of you who are part of Veritas from the beginning, if you're here six years down the road and, and you've been a part of this church for ten years... And if you're looking at me and you don't see any progress and godliness, then I should probably step down as your pastor. Is where that gets personally heavy. It doesn't matter if you see progress in other areas. If I'm a better manager of people, or I have better counseling techniques, or whatever else it is. If there's not progress in character, if godliness is not increasing in me, then I'm not fit to be your pastor. Paul tells Timothy, set an example, Timothy. Don't be the unfit fitness instructor. Don't be the teacher who's not learning. Don't be the pastor who's not caring for his soul, who's not being nourished in God's word. As soon as you begin investing in everybody else and stop investing in your own soul, you've stopped being qualified to invest in anybody else. So keep a close watch, Timothy, on yourself and on the teaching. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Let's be clear. You can't save anybody. And Paul's not telling Timothy, you can save yourself 
and you can save everybody in your church. The grace of God alone saves people. But here's the other truth that we've got to understand when we read this verse. It is the grace of God alone that saves, but God uses means to accomplish His purposes. And the means that God uses to save people is the preaching of His Word. So the ultimate cause of anybody becoming a Christian is God doing a work in your heart, making one who is spiritually dead, spiritually alive, opening your eyes, opening your ears, taking the heart of of stone, giving the heart of flesh, right? It is the work of the Spirit, God's grace alone, enabling you to believe. But enabling you to believe what? The truth of God's Word that is preached to you in a book, in the Bible, through a friend, through a preacher. So God, what's our predestination? God, anyone who is saved, God predestined that they would be saved. And He predestined how they would be saved. And God predestines that those who are saved are always saved through hearing the preaching of His Word. So no preaching of God's Word, nobody's getting saved. In other words, and take this to heart. Because you have friends and you have family members that this may apply to right now. If a pastor is not consistently and faithfully preaching the gospel and sound doctrine, if it's the whoopee cushion life, if it's cockadoodle denial, if he is not faithfully and consistently preaching the gospel and preaching sound doctrine. He is jeopardizing his own salvation and he is jeopardizing the salvation of all who hear him. That's not a stretch application from this verse. Paul says, persist in this. Persist in this. Read God's Word. Teach God's Word. Preach God's Word. Be nourished by God's Word. Put God's Word before your people. Preach the Gospel. Preach sound doctrine over and over and over again that you may save yourself and save your hearers. Don't preach the Gospel. Don't preach sound doctrine. Don't pay attention to it. Hey, I'm no theologian. Go that route jeopardize your salvation and jeopardize the salvation of however many thousands of people are in your church. Those are huge, devastating implications. John Calvin said, and just as the unfaithfulness or negligence of a pastor is fatal to the church, so it is right for its salvation to be ascribed to his faithfulness and diligence. It is indeed true that it is God alone who saves, and not even the smallest part of His glory can rightly be transferred to men. But God's glory is in no way diminished by His using the labor of men in bestowing salvation. We need more men laboring. being nourished by God's Word, His Gospel, His truth, 
and putting it before the brothers and sisters. In conclusion, are you keeping a close watch on yourself and on the teaching? Hard work. Listen to those words. Hard work. He said, train yourself. Toil and strive. Set an example. Devote yourself. Do not neglect. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them. Keep a close watch. Persist in this. That's just in ten verses. Are you doing the hard work of watching your life and your doctrine closely? Are you apathetic about one? Because remember, Paul is saying it's both and. Are you the one who externally, everything looks good? I mean, the outside of the cup is, it's sweet. No one would have any doubts. But all your time is focused externally. And you know, and God knows, that there's no relationship with Him. That there's no peace because of Him. That there's no joy in Him. That there's no real heart obedience to Him. You're keeping a close watch on your life because others are keeping a close watch on your life. And you want to look a certain way. And you want the reputation that comes with that. But you're not watching your doctrine. You're not watching your thinking. You're not watching your inner life. You're not believing what you should be believing. Or are you the other person? Are you just all ahead? You could debate me into a corner. You know the theology. You know the history of the church. You, you know sound doctrine. You know the gospel. But there's just no application in your life. Or you use it as a license. Well, I know I'm elect. I know I'm saved. I know God's been gracious. So, I'm going to exercise my freedom in Christ. And you take that to licentiousness and indulging your, your sin. And you don't care anymore about your life. And you don't, you don't care about what people think about you. And that, that's their problem. You're not paying attention to yourself. You could give a rip about holiness and godliness. You're not saying no to ungodliness and yes to godliness. You're not putting things off and putting things on, Paul talks about. Or are you paying attention to both your life and your doctrine? Men, if you have families, is your wife, is she watching her life and her doctrine closely? Do you need to somehow, some way, help her watch her life more closely? Help her watch her doctrine more closely. Do you have children? Are you creating little Pharisees? Little rule keepers? Right? Externally, they look great. Oh, they watch their life. They know to watch their life. They have no idea why. Or are you teaching your children just Bible story after Bible story after Bible story, telling them about Jesus, but then it has no carryover into how they live their life or frankly how they see mom or dad live their life. Is your family watching their life and their doctrine closely? Christian, are you watching your life 
and your doctrine closely. I'll pray and we'll take communion together as a family. If you're visiting with us today, there's some instructions about how we do communion in your bulletin. I encourage you to read those. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word, for truth, for giving us light, and for bringing us heat and application and for doing something in our souls by your Holy Spirit where your words become more than just words. They become what they are, your, your revelation to us. God, we know and we're thinking well that if, if we really believe what your word says, our, our lives, just they look different. So help us, God. You bring your gospel into our heads and, and into our hearts through all different avenues through the preaching of Your Word, through through our reading of Your Scripture, through the, the Holy Spirit's work within us. Bring the Gospel to bear on us over and over and over again. If we're discontent, make us content because of the Gospel. If we're frustrated, make us at peace because of the Gospel. If we're unloving, make us loving because of the Gospel. If we, if we are not happy, make us happy because of the Gospel. If we are holding too tightly to things in this world, help us to hold more loosely to things in this world because of the gospel. If we're being lazy, God, cause us to be hardworking because of the gospel. If we're neglecting our duties and responsibilities to our family because we're working hard, convict us through the gospel. May we be a people who have good gospel doctrine, but a life that flows from it. We ask this and pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this free audio podcast by Veritas Church. For more audio and video, please visit veritas-truth.com.